So our scripture reading will be taken from the New Testament letter of Paul to the Philippians. To the Philippians. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there now. You'll find Philippians uh, in the New Testament, um, and it'll be on page 980 in your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would invite you to just take a copy that's under the tray, uh, uh, under the chair in the tray, uh, and uh, you'll either find one in front of you or behind you or to the left or the right. But Philippians chapter 1, as we began this journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, this morning I'm going to be reading Philippians 1, verses 1 through 8. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. That's really the word there. I'll explain more later. Slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. There they are. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. So next Sunday, a new cruise ship hits the sea. I don't know if you've read about this or not, but after a week like the one we've had, You might be interested. This ship is five times larger than the Titanic. That's huge. It it boasts six water slides, seven pools. The, 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 The largest pool at sea, the brochure says. It has eight neighborhoods. Neighborhoods. Forty restaurants. Forty restaurants. 
2,800 rooms holding 7,600 passengers. I mean, it's like a city. The largest aqua park at sea, multiple theaters. It's 1,200 feet long. That's 400 yards. That's a par four. The weather there is going to be sunny and 80. It was one below when I came to the church this morning. Perhaps we should start a service on this ship. I mean, they need Jesus too. And the Apostle Paul was one of those passengers lounging on a deck chair, sipping his favorite beverage in the Blue Caribbean on this cruise in January when from spiritual ecstasy he blissfully wrote the first few verses of Philippians, this epistle of joy. Not quite. But sometimes we often assume that or maybe we don't consciously but it just we just assume that man Paul was having a really good day and he was in the Caribbean and he just wrote these beautiful verses and you know well he did write about joy and these are beautiful verses but not as a passenger at sea on a cruise but rather as a prisoner in Rome he's not writing out of relaxation He's writing out of a space of incarceration. Verse 7 literally reads, In my chains. In my chains. Now, if his chains can be connected to Acts 28, then that means Paul is in the capital city of the empire. Paul is at Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. Awaiting trial before Caesar's court for the sake of the gospel. Uh, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 16, it says that when Paul got to Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier to guard him. That's what Acts 28, 16 says. Also in Acts 28, verse 20, it says, Paul says, it is because of the hope of Israel. And for Paul... Jesus is the hope of Israel. It's because of the hope of Israel I am wearing this chain. So, so Paul is in prison in chains for Jesus. Now to be clear, Paul is not being tortured here. But he is in Roman custody. And while awaiting trial, he is confined to a modestly rented room near the barracks of the Praetorian, which is Caesar's personal bodyguards for 24 hours a day seven days a week Paul was handcuffed to a long chain and on the other end is a Roman guard so he's deprived not only of freedom he is deprived of privacy someone some military soldiers with him all the time and Paul is completely dependent 
on the benevolent support of a network of friends to provide for his needs. I'm talking about food. I'm talking about... There's no 40 restaurants in Rome. Not where Paul is. He's allowed to receive guests, but there's no department of corrections to supply him with food and shelter. It's all on Paul. Furthermore, this situation will last two years. Two years. So, you know, you get the notice about Paul being imprisoned, and then, you know, your heart goes out, and let's have a special offering, and then we send it off, and then he kind of gets forgotten. But not here. No, he's got two years, man. Two years of waiting. Two years of waiting for the government to respond to his case. Two years of wondering, is he going to be set free or is he going to be executed? It's, a, it's not a weekend wait for your turn in traffic court. It's a 700 plus day season of waiting over that which is out of your hands. Paul has no control over his future. He's not on a cruise ship. So my question is this, what kind of letter would you write if you were in a place where you'd rather not be for an undetermined length of time with no set outcome? What would that letter from you sound like? For me, it would be, get me out. But that's not what we read here in these verses. In fact, do these verses, if you didn't see the word imprisonment, I mean, do these verses sound like someone who's in prison awaiting trial for his life? I mean, Paul just gushes when he writes. He says to this church, I have you in my heart. I'm praying with you with all joy. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus. Ah, it's just... It's just a beautiful view here. Do you notice there are no commands for us to obey in these verses? There's, there's no instructions to keep. There's just a view to enjoy, one that's more precious than a Caribbean sunset. Man, it's a, it's a view of deep, joyful, otherworldly love between Paul and the church he started 10 years prior to writing this letter. It's, I mean... This man loves these people. And these people love this man. And Jesus is the reason why. I'm just wondering, is it possible, is it possible for us to love one another where we are the way the Apostle Paul loved the Philippians where they were? Is that possible? Is it possible for us to feel intense spiritual love in Champagne the way they felt in Philippi? Is it possible? Is it possible for us to see what's happening here in the dynamics of our community as, 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 something, as something more than just you know, transferring religious data, but instead, I mean, just carrying each other relationally? Is that possible? Oh, church, I, I want these verses for us. 
I really do. I want us to feel about one another the way the Philippians and Paul felt about one another then. I want that for us. In our country, we are entering a volatile, divisive season. And what I'm wondering is that, is there a quality of love that can stand against the tidal waves of partisan bitterness? Is there? Well, I believe so. I think, these, I think that's what these verses are offering. These verses are offering an invitation. They're inviting us to a partnership of otherworldly love otherworldly community, otherworldly unity, otherworldly joy. I'm talking about the kind of joy that surpasses a week-long cruise in January or a favorable electoral outcome. I'm talking about the kind of joy that'll get you through chemotherapy. I'm talking about the kind of joy that will sustain you through your unemployment. I'm talking about the kind of joy that will bolster you in your heartbreaking loss. It's and, and listen, it is a joy that can escort you across the threshold of death into the very arms of Jesus Christ. Do you want that kind of joy this morning here, church? Well, these verses are about that kind of joy, that quality of joy. These verses are about sharing joy in Jesus. And so as we consider these verses this morning, I want us to see that sharing joy in Jesus consists of three essentials. Three essentials. They consist of first shared identity, that's verses 1 and 2. Shared assurance, that's verses 3 through 6. And then shared affection, that's verses 7 and 8. That's where we're going here this morning. Shared identity, shared assurance, and shared affection. Let's talk about shared identity first. Shared identity. You notice how Paul starts this letter. He's, he, he starts with Paul and Timothy, and then he says, and I said this intentionally, the, the, our church Bibles will say servants of Christ Jesus, but if you look at the footnote, the, it's the word doulos, which literally means slave. Slave. So it's just a pretty gritty term for servant paul and timothy slaves of christ jesus to the saints in christ jesus who are in philippi so paul talks about slaves of christ and saints in christ that's the shared identity by the way christ about five times paul talks about christ here in these first couple of verses it's significant isn't it in other letters paul identifies himself as an apostle of christ but not here so like in Galatians, Galatians begins very authoritatively. Paul, an apostle, not by men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Man, he just flashes his badge right there. But not here. He refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Why? Because here in Philippi, his apostleship was not in question. The Philippians know that Paul lived like Jesus when with them. They know that he suffered for them. They know that, that he took indignities on their behalf and for their benefit. They know that he reached down into the lowest of Philippi's cultural caste system and acknowledged himself as a slave in order to convey that in Christ's church, 
all matter to God. We are one in Christ. And so by identifying as a slave of Jesus, Paul wants it publicly known that Jesus has a total claim on his life. And it's absolute. Paul belongs to the world's true emperor. And this is remarkable language, especially when we consider the context. Let's talk a little bit about Philippi. So Philippi was located in northern Greece. It's time for slides with Randy. All right, I want you to take a look at uh, some slides here. So what you see here is Rome's, this is in the first century. This is in Paul's day. What you see here is a network of highways. So Dwight Eisenhower instigated the interstate highway system in our country after World War II because he didn't want it to take. He wanted to get from one coast to the other as quickly as possible in the event of an invasion. That, that, that's, that's part of the rationale, okay? Well, Rome, he, he got it from Rome because what you have here is a network of highways across the empire. Now, let's, let's find out where Philippi is at the next slide. You see that circle area there? That's, that's, we're landing on northern Greece there. Let's, go, let's zoom up a little bit on the next slide. And there you have, right about in the middle of that little oval, you, uh, you've got where Philippi was. I've got one more slide that I want to show you. There's Philippi right about there. So it's along the coast of northern Greece. Uh, here's another slide uh, just to show you this highway in that section called the Ignatian Way. And to the far right is the city Byzantium, which is now Istanbul. And that traverses all the way across the northern part of Macedonia or Greece. And uh, then you can just hop on a ship at the Adriatic and find yourself in Italy. And, and Philippi was right about in the middle of the Ignatian Way. And uh, here's a recreation of ancient Philippi. It, it was a really a glorious colony of Rome. And you'll see that the Ignatian Way, there's a line that kind of goes from the bottom part of the slide on the right-hand side up to the upper left-hand part of the side, that little diagonal slant there. That's the Ignatian Way. So it runs right through uh, downtown Philippi. And if you go to Philippi today, you'll see, you can see the ruins. And uh, so you can see the marketplace and the forum. And, and then uh, you can see, uh, that's, a, that's a church on the far left-hand side that goes back to the 5th and 6th century of ancient Philippi. Here's another broader picture. Uh, there's the marketplace there called the Forum that you can see uh, where business was conducted. That church that I referred to is there in the bottom right-hand side of the screen. Up to the upper left-hand side of the screen is, uh, is an amphitheater. Uh, and I think I've got another slide for that one as well. There it is. That was very much, a, it just had a very Roman look, a very much Roman feel to it. And then I've got another slide to show you. Uh, there's another picture of the marketplace and where's business and shops and administrative areas and the government were in that vast area. And then one more picture. Here's a close-up of that basilica, that church. That was ancient Philippi. 
uh, ancient Philippi was a piece of Rome in northern Greece. Uh, 80% of the inscriptions at Philippi are in Latin. Uh, Philippi was the site of the final battle when the Roman Republic became a Roman Empire and when ruled by the Senate became ruled by Caesar. And nearly a hundred years before, Augustus Caesar awarded his faithful military veterans with land and property there on Philippi. But Philippi was structured and its architecture was very, very Roman. Uh, Peter Oakes has done extensive work on the demographics of Philippi. And I thought you might be interested in, uh, this is how the city was uh, maybe divided demographically. Uh, 20% of the 10,000, maybe 15,000 uh, population of Philippi, 20% were slaves. 77% dealt with trades and farmers and, and just the working poor. There was no middle class in the first century. So don't think that this is a middle class existence. Uh, there's, just, there's just slave poor, working poor, and then the elite, 3%. That would have been Philippi. And then here's something else ethnically that Peter Oakes uh, uh, says. That, that So the city would have been 40% Roman, Roman citizens, and then about 60% Greek. And, and, and that even is painting with a broad brush because there would be different ethnicities of Roman citizenship, and then there would be different ethnicities of, uh, of those of Greek heritage. But this would, have been, this would have been the city that Paul would have entered around the year 50-51 A.D. when he planted this church in Acts chapter 16. And what I want you to see is that Paul identifies himself in a way that acknowledges those whom Rome saw was at the bottom. See, So for, for Paul, slave of Christ bears no shame because he knows the glory of his master. And later in Philippians chapter 3, if you just look on the other side of the page, you know, Paul will give a religious resume. He says, if you've got reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. And he just talks about all of the different uh, uh, credits to his religious resume. Eighth-day circumcision, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, blameless righteousness under the law. It's an entire uh, resume of religious accolades. And yet Paul said that whatever gain he, he had, I count it loss, loss for the sake of Christ. And that word loss, in fact, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 8, I count them as rubbish. And that's the word excrement. Paul says, that's how I feel about what I once had because what I, who I have now is Jesus. And so for Paul, freedom is found in the service of a better master. His self-identity as slave leads him to identify the church, all the church, as saints. Saints. And, and, and all the church would encompass the demographics of Philippi. I mean, because uh, Peter Oakes says, uh, sh surely in, in the congregation at Philippi, uh, you know, there would be folks from all different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. And, and they're all holy ones, Paul says. 
They're all holy. That is, they're set apart and dedicated, all of them. In a caste system where social standing mattered and in a culture where your station in life would be compared to other stations, in Philippi, there was this spiritual community and you could enter this community and you could shed your rank and your title and your merit and your honor and instead, you don't, you don't see one. You just see, you see in your distinctives your unity in your king, King Jesus. And, and, and all of you, because of him, you're holy. And that may be why Paul starts with the saints. And then he adds with the elders and the deacons. And he's not saying that the elders and deacons aren't saints. He's saying that although in a Roman colony, people would have certain positions and titles, putting them first in line in the church family, in heaven's colony, there are only saints. There is no line. We're family. There's Jesus. Someone becomes a saint when God takes hold of him or her and sets him or her apart for his purposes. Saints, you say, who are saints? Saints are people whom God has in his hand for his purposes. That's who is, are you a saint? Well, if you're in Christ, you are. If you're a Christian, God has you in his hand. He's taken hold of you by his spirit to be his representative in the world. He has separated you. He has called you as his own. Saints in Christ Jesus means that there is no sainthood apart from Jesus. And you might be a good person, and you might be a religious person, and you might be a moral person, but if Jesus Christ is not in your life and in your heart as your Lord, then you're not a Christian. And if Christ is not absolutely at the core and center of your heart, that's not Christianity, whatever else it is. So the question is, who rules your heart? Who is your master? See, Where is your primary identity? Where's your primary identity? For Paul, it can only be Christ. Because he's not going anywhere. And, 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 and what we learn in these verses is that Christ not only gives us identity, but he gives us something else. Keep reading. Assurance. Shared identity in Christ. Shared assurance by Christ. Oh, oh, I love this section here. In verses 3 through 6, Paul says, In all my prayers for all of you. So Paul prays with joy because of their koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now verse 5 your koinonia now that's a familiar word in our church culture here what does it mean what means partnership as you can see in the translation there in verse 4 koinonia koinonia means to share in something with someone to share in something with someone so koinonia is about shared experiences shared existence a shared moment, shared history. So, for example, when veterans from the armed forces who have served in combat, they return here and they have survived the trauma, there's a shared experience. And it's hard to talk about that with someone who wasn't a part of that, right? When people survive a cataclysmic weather event, a natural disaster, there's a shared experience. And if you weren't a part of that, it's just hard to discuss. 
We have a ministry at a church here called Empty Arms. And it's a grief support group for parents who have suffered loss from miscarriage, stillbirth, and infant death. And, and when parents suffer together, there's a shared experience that just, uh, just it's often without words, see. What I'm describing is koinonia, to share in something with someone. And, and the logic of koinonia is this. I was one kind of person pre-koinonia. And then I entered koinonia. And, and, and when I entered koinonia, I lost the illusion of individualism. I lost the notion that I have to get through this thing on my own. And then I realized that if I'm going to survive and thrive, I need others and they need me. And that dynamic of sharing mutuality is what the Bible calls koinonia. And even the Apostle Paul, the, the writer of the New Testament planter of churches, baptizer of many, preacher of the gospel. Even Paul couldn't survive on his own. He needed others, and they needed him. And together, we need Jesus. Which leads Paul to this fixed conclusion, he says. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus, no matter what. No, like Paul, the church was experiencing suffering. Why, well, look at the bottom of uh, chapter 1 in Philippians. Paul says, for it has been granted, verses 29 and 30, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So faith is not merely a gift, but suffering is too. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What kind of suffering is Paul talking about? Don't know for sure, but it's probably economic suffering. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul talks about the severe poverty that overcame the Philippians because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was their primary identity and not Caesar. And they were paying a price for it. But you can do that in a weekend. But what about for the long haul? Can they sustain their faith in this long trial? See, that's the question, isn't it? Can I see this through? Can I survive this? Can I survive this? How am I going to be able to endure? And Paul says, I'll tell you how you're going to be able to endure. The God who grants you suffering will grant you endurance through your suffering. That's a promise. You will survive this because Jesus will see you through the end. Do you believe that? And Paul speaks it. I'm confident of this, he says. It's not he might see you through. He may complete. No, he will. He will. He will. And here's what that means practically. And just stay with me here, right here, folks. I want you to get this. I want us to get this because I need to say this for me. We must never measure the strength or quality of our relationship with Christ based on how we are feeling emotionally at any given moment. Let me say that again. We must never measure the strength or quality of our relationship with Christ based on how we are feeling emotionally at any given moment. And here's why. Because our hearts fluctuate emotionally throughout the day. Huh? 
I mean, in the morning, you wake up, and your heart just doesn't feel good, you know, and it's like there's this sense of dread. You've got to get up, and, and then, you know, you have some breakfast, and you have some coffee, and you, you have the little caffeine helps, and your heart's feeling pretty good. And then 2.30 hits, and you're getting kind of groggy, right? Why did I have that burrito? I'm getting sluggish. And then, you know, you kind of go through, and then you make it to five, and you feel a little better, see? It's up, and it's down, and it's up, and it's down. So does that mean that when it was up, I'm a mature Christian when I'm down? No. No, 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 no. No, church, I mean, this world is up and down and everything in between. This world is beautiful and this world is complicated. And our church is large enough right now that someone is in here and they have just been, you, you would have thought they've been on that cruise I talked to you about earlier. And then others are here and not so much. You see, no one in this room is saved because of the emotional fluctuations of our frail, fallen hearts. We are saved because our firm object is Jesus Christ. And he's risen from the dead. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. No one in this room, including the pastor, gets himself or herself to the heavenly realm. No one, only Jesus does. And moreover, it's not like Jesus stuffs a few provisions in a backpack and then sticks it on our shoulders and then hauls us out to the untamed wilderness and then pats us on the back and says, lots of luck. Hope you make it home. No, 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 no. It's Jesus picking us up and putting us in the back seat of his SUV. And all along the way, he's just driving us through the winding, scenic roads to the new heavens and the new earth. And he's got his eye on us in the rearview mirror. And he's reassuring us, I'll get you there. I'll get you there. Just enjoy the view. Enjoy the view. All along the way, he's giving us the oil of his spirit, the bread of his word, the water of his refreshing presence. Your salvation is not in your hands. God brought you to faith in Jesus, and he will keep you in that faith until life everlasting. It never depended on you. Rest in the comfort that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, the day. And listen, 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 that doesn't make us lazy. Instead, it activates us because now we know that in Christ we can't lose. So now I can take risks. Now I can show up on Thursday nights and help feed hungry people. Now I can show up at first Saturday here. Now I can get over to Salt and Light and serve and shop. And now I can help out in children's ministry. It empowers us to take risks to invite someone to church. Why? Because in Christ we can't lose. We have shared identity in Christ. We have shared assurance of Christ. And this leads us to shared affection. Ah, shared affection. Paul says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection 
in Christ Jesus, the affection. Paul feels joy over them with the splanknon of Jesus. The splanknon. The effect that, that we get our word spleen. Oh, just, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. So you just look at that person you love and say, I love you with all my splanknon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love you too with all my splanknon. <laughs> Paul feels it. I Paul feels it in the gut. I feel the gut, love, affection of Jesus for you in my body. The gut love. So it's more than that. Listen, listen. What Paul says is that he yearns. When when Paul says he yearns for them, he is saying that Jesus Christ is yearning for them in and through Paul's body. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ is lives in me and the Christ who is living in me is yearning for you the Christ who is living in me is yearning for you and that's why this church grew and that's why we can show you archaeological sites hundreds of years later of a basilica because the Christian church conquered the empire just by being the Christian church by loving deeply and effectively for one another And what does that look like in real life? Well, just look at Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 3, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Beloved, there's just too much religious consumerism happening in American Christianity. And Philippians chapter 2 invites us, Philippians 1 invites us to Christ-saturated affection, grounded in cross-centered selflessness. Will you let Jesus use your body and your mouth and your heart to give and share love to someone else? That's what's going on here. Shared identity, shared assurance, and shared affection. That's joy in Jesus. Now, before I sit down, let me just ask some hard questions here. What really ties us together as a church? What will we choose to talk about when we meet out here in the foyer? What are we going to choose to talk about? Mere civilities? The weather? Sports? Careers? Children? Grandchildren? Our aches and pains? It, it's, I'm, I don't want you to think I'm cranky. You sound cranky. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not saying that we can never talk about these things. It's that they're not what keeps us together. Nothing else, because it's not strong enough to hold us together, to bind the extraordinary differences that we have, takes a king. And that's the good news. That God reconciled himself to us through his son, Jesus. And we must put the fellowship of the gospel before any other fellowship. We must. Uh, see, our problem, our problem is with disordered affections and disordered fellowships. We must keep Christ first. He is our joy. And you know why? Because we were his joy. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And, and he is the one who's going to supply all of all of our needs he will finish what he started he who works in you to will and to act according to his 
good purposes. 2,000 years ago, when people came to Philippi, they said, look, this reminds us of Rome. And now, when people come into this space, may they, may they look at our church, may they feel the conversations and the fellowship and the affection and the shared identity, and may they hear the prayers, and may they participate in the conversations, and may they witness the good works in the name of Jesus, and may they say, this reminds me of heaven. This looks like the kingdom of God, and that's who we are. We are an embassy of heaven. We are an outpost of Christ's coming kingdom, and in Christ's kingdom, it's no strange thing for a godly hotel maid to mentor a new Christian lady who happens to be a CEO. In Christ's coming kingdom, there's no caste. All are holy in Christ. All are saints because all are in Christ, of Christ, and for Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Oh God, we love you. Bind our hearts together by your truth. Help us see reality as you see it and help us feel toward one another how our spiritual ancestors felt toward one another. Guide us with your truth, lead us with your heart, and may we find everlasting joy in your presence for your glory and the good of others. And the church said, amen.